0: Thanks for checking out the Texas Triple Play podcast. Make sure to follow us on our social media platforms, TX Triple Play on Twitter and Instagram, and the Texas Triple Play Facebook group. Also, make sure to check us out and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Now, it is baseball time in Texas. Welcome to the Texas Triple Play Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Staten. I have a very special episode for the listeners this week. I know normally on this show, we talk Astros baseball, Rangers baseball, minor league baseball in the state of Texas. But the interesting thing is that right now in Texas and throughout the whole nation, we don't have baseball. Baseball has been brought to a halt and it has stopped. It has ceased, it has been suspended. And um, you know, the funny thing is, is about nine months ago, I decided that I was going to start a baseball podcast. And um, I started putting some things together. I started getting some equipment. Um, I started looking at what it takes to actually make one of these things and uh, and how often I should do it and when I should do it. and what my audience should be and what I should talk about. And, um, every time when I started thinking about this podcast, the thing that excited me the most was talking about topics and areas that I'm passionate about. And when I started this podcast, um, the thing that excited me the most was the Astros, the Rangers, and minor league baseball. And that hasn't changed. I will be moving continually moving forward. Um, with Astros content Rangers content and minor league content as we get it here first I will keep y'all updated over the next few weeks months and hopefully years of the latest in all three of those fronts with the Texas triple play podcast But right now considering that we actually have a lack of content uh, And news in and around the game of baseball. Um, I thought this would be a good time to do something that it's kind of cool and that is a uh, a brief mini series over something that I'm also passionate about about the game of baseball and that's baseball history. The interesting thing as I continue to talk and interact with people around this podcast and through this podcast is yes you're Rangers fans, yes you're Astros fans, yes you're fans of my loving baseball but we're fans of the game. We're fans of the history of the game. We love talking about the greatest moments when we almost won or did win, when we could have won, when we should have won. And it's those moments that no one can ever take away from you, those memories that no one can ever take away from you. And our history of the game is something that's so special. It's something I think that we should appreciate, we should understand, and we should be aware aware of. And in the unique time that we're in right now, with baseball being at uh, suspension, being stopped, I thought it would be interesting to look at the history of baseball and pick out five or six times that baseball or the world around baseball stopped and the effect that that had on the game. So over the next five weeks, five to six weeks, we'll be doing a mini series called When the Game Stood Still, which I will be doing just that. We'll be looking at these different moments in time and how they impacted the game of baseball and I'm excited to bring that to you. It's something new. It's something fresh. It's something I've never done before. Um, and honestly, something that um, I didn't know if I was ever going to have the chance to do, maybe in an off season somewhere. Um, but now seems like it's the perfect time. So um, without further ado, let's go ahead and move into the new mini-series, When the Game Stood Still. edition of when the game stood still we're going to be talking about the 1918 major league baseball season see though most sports find the roots in gladiator style war games from ancient roman times few 20th century athletes ever actually find themselves going to war but unfortunately that's exactly what happened during the 1918 major league baseball season on april 6th 1917 The United States declared war on Germany, launching its involvement in the then nearly three-year-old war. Um, Around most of baseball and the nation, uh, people were mobilizing. And most of the minor leagues, uh, then at that point being mainly independent uh, clubs, closed up shop. The National and American League teams played a full schedule that year, just like normal. Baseball had been known as the national pastime for roughly about the last 60 years and was on the cusp of a golden era. Wrigley Field was about to celebrate its third birthday. The Red Sox had just begun their sixth season in Fenway Park. And Babe Ruth was almost three years into a storied career and his last as a full-time pitcher. But most of the effort across the nation uh, was to raise an army and mobilized public support for the war, and that unfortunately touched nearly every aspect of American society, including the sport of baseball. The war at first didn't really have much impact on rosters or the game of baseball as a whole. Um, Only a few players were drafted into the military and only a handful of others enlisted. Ball players took part in some performative military drills, uh, staged events for crowds, newsreels, to show their support uh, for the troops overseas. Team's owners donated money uh, to the war effort and baseball gear for troops for recreational purposes. And at first that stance was mainly accepted. Um, The domestic morale was high and the war was seen as something as a, a grand adventure by most of the population. But by fall 1917, the reality was setting in and baseball's everything is normal attitude wasn't wearing well. In response, the team owners agreed to uh, cut the 1918 season down to restrict travel and relocate spring training sites closer to home. Sites moved from sunny California, Florida, places like Cuba, to instead coal areas like Massachusetts, Indiana, uh, Michigan. Instead of the polished, freshly cut green baseball fields for spring training, the team is mainly practiced in things like airline hangars, horse stables, schools, and even hotels. And because of the travel restrictions, players would hold expedition Expedition games against pretty much anyone they could find, uh, including young schoolboys, factory workers, uh, field hands, and there's even a story of a team scrimmaging an all-girls baseball team. At that time, the MLB only had 16 teams, and all of which were mainly on the East Coast. And the furthest from the East Coast was the Cincinnati Reds. Um, Those teams for the 1918 season included the Chicago White Sox, the Boston Red Sox, the Cleveland Indians, the Detroit Tigers, the Washington Senators, the New York Yankees, St. Louis Browns, St. Louis Cardinals, Philadelphia Athletics, Philadelphia Phillies, the New York Giants, The Cincinnati Reds, Chicago Cubs, the Boston Braves, and the Brooklyn Robins, along with the newly minted club, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Because of the war and the subpar training conditions for spring, the owners decided to reduce the scheduled amount of games from 154 to 140. And it was the first time ever that such reduction had been done in the game of baseball. And with it, the owners also trimmed players' salaries uh, to match the lost game revenue. Many stadiums opened with war-related charity events and participated in Liberty Loan bond drives. Uh, Christy Matheson, the pitcher for the New York Giants then, um, and would become the manager of the Cincinnati Reds, helped sell more than 100,000 bonds in a single day. Uh, But that was the extent of really the big league sacrifice in the first year of U.S. involvement. For the American forces overseas, baseball was a means of boosting morale. The American military created nearly 77 baseball diamonds in France, and on any given day, some 200 games were being played throughout the country. Um, There's a quote by the uh, Herald uh, Telegraph from Pennsylvania here. The soldiers like to play baseball. You can't get enough of baseballs to go around here or equipment. We're eating them up left and right just kind of shows that no matter where you go, the game of baseball will always go with you. Um, on the home front, shipyards and steel manufacturers hired professional baseball players to do industrial work and recruited them to play on company baseball teams. See, if the players worked at these places, things like shipyards, steel mills, factories, they were exempt from the draft. And amongst the major league players who actually joined these types of teams was Shoeless Joe Jackson for the Chicago White Sox, and Charles De- Jeff Trezeme, who was a pitcher for the New York Giants. Although these games were reportedly well attended, the players were often labeled as slackers and accused of taking these type of positions to avoid military service. In early May, the War Department decreed that by July 1st, all draft eligible men employed in a non-essential occupations must apply for work directly related to the war effort, or risk being called for military service. The work or fight rule was fought heavily by baseball owners who tried to get an exemption for players in the name of national pride and entertainment, but it was no dice. Um, according to historian Jim Leake, author of From the Dugouts to the Trenches, Baseball Game, the baseball game during the Great War, approximately 38% of active major league players went on to serve and eight current and former players were either killed in action or died of illness during the war. Among them was former Philadelphia and Cincinnati great third baseman Eddie Grant, who perished while leading his troops on the search of the famous Lost Battalion. Additionally, future Hall of Famers Christy Matheson and Ty Cobb served in the chemical warfare service of the U.S. Army under Branch Rickey, who was the former manager of the St. Louis Browns and would go on to be the greatest uh, general manager of possibly the Dodgers ever, but then as the Brooklyn Dodgers. Both Cobb and Matheson were part of a gas defense drill gone horribly wrong. Um, Cobb escaped unharmed, but Matheson inhaled a fair amount of poisonous gas. Um, His condition gradually deteriorated and he died of tuberculosis seven years later at the age of 45. George Slitzer, who would also be inducted into the Hall of Fame, trained for the Chemical Warfare Service, but did not serve abroad. Pete Alexander, the game's best pitcher of the day, who had won 20 games the year before with a 1.32 ERA, served on the front lines of France and suffered from shell shock, loss of hearing, and developed symptoms of epilepsy that would later drive him towards alcohol abuse. In addition to the war happening overseas, there was another war happening in the U.S. In 1918, the U.S. saw nearly 675,000 Americans die as a result of the Spanish flu. The lives taken of minor leaguers Cy Swan, a minor league player from 1904 to 1914 who slugged 39 home runs in the 1913 season. Larry Shappell, a big league outfielder for the White Sox, Indians, and Boston Braves between 1913 and 1917. And umpire Slick O'Lennon, who had worked in the American League from 1902 to 1918, while working the World Series in 1906, 1909, 1912, 1915, and 1917. Uh, A quote here, In the death of Slick O'Lennon, the country lost a worthwhile citizen. Baseball has lost a remarkable character. And I have lost one of my best friends, said umpire Bill Evans, in 1973, Baseball Hall of Fame electee, Worked games with Olenin. If there ever was an umpire who gave the plays as he saw them, Olenin was that individual. He had a heart of oak, a keen intellect, and a courage to do what he believed was right, regardless of the opinion of others. Through 17 years of service as a member of the American League staff of umpires, he gave the best that he had. He never shrieked, he never grumbled over assignment, and always accepted them as they came as part of the game. With baseball threatened to come to an end for the 1918 season and a mass pandemic circling the nation and the globe, the game of baseball stood still. America stood still, and really all the eyes were fixed on the war overseas. But people needed baseball, and baseball needed its players. Despite losing some of the biggest names in the sport, the Major League saw record crowds for the 1918 season. and. Eventually, baseball was given a reprieve. Uh, The work or fight deadline was delayed two months to September 1st. And even then, the owners had to furiously lobby for the deadline extension for the World Series participants. Um, The government reluctantly gave in eventually, and so while the season would be shortened by another two weeks, it wouldn't be killed altogether. With a vast number of players, an average of about 15 per team, drafted or enlisted before the deadline, teams scrambled to replace veteran players with other lesser known qualities. Who left and who remained shaped the balance of power in both pennant races. The reigning National League champion, the New York Giants, began the season practically intact and it showed in the standings. They leapfrogged their way to an 18-1 start to hold the first place into June. Then in draft, the draft breached through and the Giants pitching roster was depleted. Established uh, starters, Jeff Troublet, Rube Benton, and off-season acquisition of Jesse Barnes were all off to war by the time the Giants dropped well back into second place. That left the top spot to be claimed by the Chicago Cubs, who were rendered relatively untouched by the war. Um, Absent from the pennant races over the last five years, the Cubs Cleverly had prepared for a potential devastation of talent in the 1918 season by stockpiling pitching the season before. Even after the biggest of these additions, Pete Alexander, winner of 94 games over the previous three years with Philadelphia, got quickly scooped up by the Army in May, the Cubs still had enough skilled pitching left to overwhelm more depleted in-out competition. Three starters in particular ignited the Cubs, and more importantly, stuck around through Labor Day. Left-handers Hippo Vaughn, with a 1.74 ERA, Lefty Tyler, a 2 ERA, both furnished the best ERAs in the National League. Vaughn also led the league with 22 wins, while Tyler, another offseason addition from the Boston Braves, chipped in with 19 victories. Claude Hendricks added 20 while losing only seven games for the season. Chicago's pitching helped make up for its medium output from a virtually no-name offense. As a team, they only averaged a 232 batting average and were near the bottom of the league in runs scored and home runs. Across town at Chesapeake Park, the fall of the Chicago White Sox was just starting as the rise of the Cubs was coming up. At full strength, most people agree that the White Sox are made the best team in the American League, but now they were handicapped like everyone else. The Sox had lost most of their star players, while those left behind suffered from off-year performances. Guys like Joe Jackson, Eddie Collins, Lefty Williams, Red Faber, and Happy Finch were all eventually scooped away by the military. Eddie Classe never heard from the draft board and his presence missed, was missed instead on the field. Um, after winning 28 games the year before, he managed only 12 victories against an American League high 19 losses. The White Sox crashed to 6th place, 10 games under 500. Among strong American League contenders, the Boston Red Sox initially looked too depleted to be a serious threat. Uh, to anyone in the American League. Player manager Jack Barry was gone before the season started, as was left-hander Duffy Lewis, who was perhaps Boston's best everyday hitter. Former international league president Ed Barrow replaced Barry as manager and looked around for someone to fill Lewis's shoes in the outfield. Right fielder Harry Hooper suggested to Barrow that he look internally and Barrow responded by selecting to move a starting pitcher from their starting rotation to the outfield. That pitcher's name was Babe Ruth. The 23-year-old Southpaw had blossomed into one of the American League's best pitchers in recent years and moreover had showed a tantalizing promise at the plate. Ruth not only hit as well as everyday players, but he showed unlimited power. Um, In his first three full seasons with Boston, Ruth averaged a home run every 39 at-bats, while most of his teammates had a 457 at-bat to home run ratio. Hesitant at first, Barrow slowly began to play Ruth routinely in the outfield, crossing his fingers that Ruth would deliver while the rest of his young, talented staff wouldn't get swept into the service. Barrows' hopes paid off, On both accounts, the Red Sox survived a close pennant race with Cleveland to join the clubs in the World Series, and Ruth became the only Red Sox player to bat 300 while also hitting 11 round trippers. Ruth had two other home runs reduced to triples because during that time, each hit in extra innings with a man on first base would essentially become a triple because they only counted the run scored and not the home run as well. The season earned Ruth his first of many, many home run titles, and his slugging percentage, 555, easily outdistanced all other major leaguers. He also led the entire league in extra base hits with 56. On the mound, Carl Mays was 21-13, and 13, Sad Sam Jones 16-5, and, and Bullet Joe Smith was 15-15. And, and They stuck around despite the draft and was able to help the Red Sox lead a superior pitching squad. Ruth even managed to leave the outfield and take the mound 20 times in 1918, winning 13 times, losing seven, and producing a strong 2.21 ERA. The career of Babe Ruth, the dynamic pitcher, was coming to an end, but the career of Babe Ruth, the amazingly dynamic home run hitter, was about to begin. But first, the 1918 World Series would give him one last opportunity to showcase his talents on the mound. Ruth started Game 1 and silenced the Cubs with a six-hit 1-0 shutout, setting the tone for the very low-scoring World Series. But it wasn't baseball that day that provided the greatest highlight. It was the singing of the Star-Spangled Banner during the 6th inning stretch that really drew everyone's attention. The New York Times described how the afternoon yawn of the spectators was broken up and what happened next. The yawn was checked and the heads were barred as the ball players turned quickly about and faced the music. First, the song was taken up by a few, then others joined when the final notes came and a great volume of the melody of the crowd rolled across the field. It was the very end that the onlookers exploded into thunderous applause and rented the air with cheer that marked the highest point of the day's enthusiasm. The minds of baseball fans were on war, but the patriotic outburst following the singing of the national anthem was far greater than the upheaval of the emotion showed when Babe Ruth took the mound, or when he had conquered Hippo Jim Vaughn and the Cubs in a seething, flinging duel by a score of 1-0. After the team split the next two games, Ruth came back to the mound for game four and continued his scoreless mastery, finally succumbing to a two-run rally by the Cubs in the eighth inning. It ended a streak in which Ruth had shut out opponents in the World Series for 29.2 straight innings, a mark that would be maintained until 1961. Despite all the amazing things that Babe Ruth did for his career, what happened next might be his proudest moment. With Ruth and the Red Sox winning 3-2, Game 5 was prepared to be played at Boston. But there was trouble brewing with the National Commission, the governing body of organized baseball, and they had earlier authorized a new rule in which the second, third, and fourth place teams uh, in the season would share in the World Series earnings siphoning away money that once was awarded solely to those playing in the World Series. It would have helped had the owners told the players of this new rule, but they hadn't. Once the Red Sox and the Cub players found out, they were so outraged that they refused to take the field for Game 5. Many people, including many fans across the nation, thought that the World Series might be over altogether. And the shortened season, having already sacrificed numerous games and having played the World Series early, could be coming to a close. American League president Ben Johnson, in a less than sober state, entered the clubhouses and lowering his boomerang voice upon the players, took upon himself to point out a few interesting things. He said, why cause a stir over a few hundred bucks when Americans were dying overseas? This gave Babe Ruth an idea. He entered both clubhouses, first the visitors and then his own, and reportedly gave a very motivating, spirited speech about patriotism, the game of baseball, and what it meant to finish this World Series out strong. He then by unconfirmed reports, papers, and eyewitnesses, stated to numerous players that he would play for nothing, that just the game of baseball itself was enough. The payout to the players in the 1918 World Series would be the lowest ever, $1,102 for the Red Sox, and $671 for the Cubs. The Red Sox would eventually win the World Series in six games, their fourth championship in seven years. And their last in nearly a century. The baseball season and the World Series would end on September 11th, 1918 and shortly after, on November 11th, 1918, the War II would end. The 1918 season will always be remembered by war, death, and obviously a shortened season, but we saw some amazing accomplishments throughout the sport. A Ruth led the game in home runs with 11, which was a record at the time. A slugging percentage of .555 and extra base hits with 56. Ty Cobb would bat .382 in just under 100 games and lead all all batters in on-base percentage. Walter Johnson, a pitcher for the Washington Senators, with lead pitchers in wins, 23. ERA, 1.27, and shutouts with 8 along with also pacing all pitchers in the strikeout category with 162. He also carried the game's highest wins above replacement for any player in that season and would be considered the best player in the sport during the 128-gamed-shortened campaign. Baseball as America knew it and many of its players would return following the war, but that's a story and a time for another day. Thank you for listening to the Texas Triple Play Podcast. I have been your host, Ben Staten. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of this mini-series, When the Game Stood Still. I will be coming back to you next week with part two of this miniseries. I'm very excited about it. Let me know what you thought about this and about things like this on our social media platforms TX Triple Play on Twitter and Instagram and the Texas Triple Play Facebook group. Until next time, I'm Ben Staten with the Texas Triple Play Podcast.